How can I help you, sir? See the man talking to your bank manager has his case open. Oh, that's Mr. Gwynden, one of our assistant managers. Our manager is Mr. Schoenman. He's not in today. But you see the man with the briefcase? Yes. That's my partner. He has a gun in there. If you don't do exactly what I tell you, or if you give me any kind of a problem at all, I'm going to look over at my partner, and he's going to shoot your Mr. Gwynden between the eyes. Now take one of those big envelopes and put as many hundreds, fifties, and twenties as you can pack into it. Nothing with bank straps or rubber bands. I don't want any dive packs. I don't want any bait money. Start with the second drawer and then the one over there underneath the money counter. Okay. It's okay. Come on, Loretta. The key's right there next to you. Thank you. No bills off the bottom of the drawer, please. First time being around. You're doing great. Just smile, Loretta, so you don't look like you're being held up. You got a very pretty smile. The twenty, give me the twenties. I'll take those. There you go. Put those in my pocket. There you go. I had to give my partner a sign, and that's good. Now he's going to wait thirty seconds until I'm out of the building. Make sure you haven't set off the alarm. If you have, he's going to shoot you, Mr. Gwendolyn, between the eyes. Okay. Uh, I think that'll do it, Loretta. Thank you. Have a nice day. You too. Buddy Mills, I thought of you this weekend. Last Friday was a very good New Music Friday. Wilco released a new disc, as did The National, and a surprise second album this year, which I didn't even know was coming until like a week ago. So did you listen to both of them over the weekend? Uh, I did listen to both of them on Friday, in fact, uh, (laughs) back to back, and then back to back again. Uh, Definitely still a fanboy. Uh, the national pulled the Taylor Swift and did a little album sneaky drop drop and I'm here for it, but it does sound like all of the last four national records just all kind of combined. Uh, so that's my problem with them. Um, and then the Wilco album, um, I'm still trying to figure out the timing of the title and how they were able to sneak in cousin with their title managing to kind of pull off this maneuver with the bear and cousin as a word and as a phrase we're using these days. And like, if you're from Chicago, you know, cousin is really used a lot and the bear does it perfectly. And, and then Wilco, of course. So like, I really want to know what the timing was on that title and I haven't read anything yet. So I'm curious. I'm surprised I missed that. I didn't, I didn't go there. I was just excited to listen to new Wilco. Um, did you like Chi-town, it? town baby. Chi-town. I, I do like it a lot. Uh, yeah. I've got a special soft spot in my heart for everything. All things Jeff Tweedy. Matthew Mills. Welcome to the show. We've been wanting to do this for a while. Tell us about yourself. What do you do? Uh, where are you from? Give us the vitals. My name is Matthew Mills. I am a natural born world shaker. <laughs> and uh, you are. I, I am. I am. It's true. I hail originally from Texas, although um, I'm as much of a New Yorker now. I've lived half my life here in New York City. Um, I run a production company that I founded 18 years ago called Space Station. And we do a little bit of everything from commercials and branded to live streams, fitness. We've built studios. We have a studio of our own in Brooklyn. Um, and we do, you know, uh, a, a wide variety of work kind of for almost every platform. 
Um, right now, we're out on the festival circuit with Chasing Chasing Amy, a feature documentary that we can talk about a little bit more if you want. But yeah, we're uh, we're doing kind of all of the things all at once. This year, we've done a couple of commercials. Uh, we produced a play. We've done Chasing Chasing Amy as a world premiere at Tribeca and beyond. Um, and we're gearing up for a Food Network pilot at the beginning of next month. So we're pretty diverse. You're the first guest I've had on this podcast that is an Emmy Award winner. Tell us what you won the Emmy for. Come on, brag a little bit. Let's go. Why, thank you. Uh, I, I won an Emmy 146 years ago uh, for <laughs> uh, producing and directing a season of MTV Unplugged uh, that featured Katy Perry, Adele, Silver Sun Pickups, Paramore, Vampire Weekend, and All Time Low. We're going to talk more about the documentary in a second, so we'll get back to that. But um, I want to talk a little bit about how you and I got connected. One of the reasons I chose you to do this movie with me, Out of Sight, tonight, is because of Steven Soderbergh, the director. There's a connection between the two of us, and Soderbergh is the connection, and I want to explain that. You are a big film poster or one-sheet collector. Uh, what one-sheet do you have behind you right now? Right now, I have the Italian version of Cool Hand Luke uh, in Italian. It's Nick Manofreda. One of my very favorite posters, and I know you know this about me, is for a movie called The Limey, which came out in 1999. It was directed by Steven Soderbergh. But that poster sort of symbolizes what that movie is sort of about, which is like it's got this whole 60s subtext going through it. It's Peter Fonda. It's Terrence Stamp, but big actors back in the 60s. The poster is designed like a one sheet that you would see from a 60s era film. So when I was originally writing my pilot script for Off the Menu, which eventually became Keep the Bottle Close, the very first paragraph in that script on page one, I set the scene of Ethan in his apartment in New York, and I referenced that the Limey poster is on the wall. Unnecessary piece of information in a pilot script. You don't need that, right? But when the script found its way to you by way of our buddy, Chris Vivian, and we'll give Chris a proper shout out. But I remember you reached out to me when you finally reached out and with your feedback on the script, you had said that the limey reference that got your attention, you raised your eyebrow. Do you remember that, any of this? Oh, yeah. I remember it quite well. And I remember you being very uh, almost coy and a little sheepish about it. Like, oh, I, I kind of feel like I've been busted is what it felt like. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, dude, like. It helped me as a Soderbergh fan and is also a fan of the Limey too. Like we could do, we could do the Limey next if you want. We should. It just immediately gave me an understanding of sort of where you were coming from tonally. And while it's not certainly a crime caper of any kind, it's a, it's a dramedy and it's so heartfelt. It still gave me like this like attitude about at least the lead character and like what, what his life was like and where he was, was in, in, in the world. Um, and I was hellbound and determined to make sure we had that poster on set. And I did. I bought that fucker. I remember. we had it. Do you still have it? Um, I do still have it, yeah. The short version is that Matthew's production company ultimately was retained to produce and direct Keep the Bottle Close, which was my pilot script. We shot that in, I want to say, fall of 2015. Um, mm -hmm. I think we shot it over four days in New York. I think we covered 14 locations in four days which is unheard of. And we got through an entire 22 minute, 24 minute script um, with multiple cast members. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a joy. And I remember coming home every night actually and watching master of none because it had just come out. Yep. And I, I just needed, like I needed that vibe at the end of the night. I was too wired to go to sleep. 
I remember this really well. My family was actually out of town for some reason. So I had the whole place to myself and just like, yeah, it was glorious. I would do these really long days with you guys um, and then go home, watch Master of None, have a bourbon and pass out and then wake up and kind of do it all over again. And I remember on day three being like, oh no, oh, I'm so sad. I only have one more day of this bubble. That's not cool. I want to do this always. And I, I think that if if during that production, I would say 90% of the people, if offered a, cho- a job on that show for 10 straight years, would have taken it in a heartbeat. We had such a good time. The crew was amazing. Zach McTee, Michael Patty on the camera, Chris producing. Like everybody was just – and everybody wore every hat that they needed to on any given day. It was a good time. And um, yeah, you probably don't get thanked enough by the people involved in that project. But thank you for writing that hell of a pilot and um you know what man you never know it's still it's still viable thank you I, and i want to say this publicly like as chris vivian and i worked together at turner for five minutes and serendipitously he was your production partner at space station and you guys had a long history together so he was the one that first read the script and he's like you know what i think mills might might be interested in this he knew i wanted to make it independently i wanted to make it outside the studio system and we did raise some money donated some of my own money and uh, and we did it. But I'll, I'll say just one last thing on Keep the Bottle Close. It's one of the great creative experiences in my life. Those four days and even the weeks leading up to it, working with you and talking to you and doing the casting and, and you know, thinking about the music and choosing Jerry Rafferty and all these little little inside things that you and I had with each other for that maybe that year, I would say. Yeah. Um, a phenomenal experience. I think you did a great job with it. And I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for letting me achieve uh-huh. my dream. Seriously. Well. Uh, right back at you. It was a dream production for us. And a uh, quick shout out to uh, Mr. Nick Malone, <laughs> who uh, has a small role in the pilot, but is also like so was so pivotal for all of us and so helpful. Um, and like just such a such an incredible sport and so up for it. And that was like the pervasive attitude across the board with everybody. There just was nobody phoning that in. We had a great time. Our actors were insanely good. Yeah. Um, yeah, we had a blast. I guarantee Nick Malone is beaming right now, so thank you for plugging him. Um, I saw you a couple months ago in L.A. You guys had done a one of the screenings for Chasing Chasing Amy, which you just referenced. Tell us a little bit about the film, um, where you guys are right now in the festival circuit, and what's to come. Chasing Chasing Amy is a feature documentary. It premiered at Tribeca um, in June. It's directed by an amazing filmmaker named Sav Rogers. Yep. Produced by myself, Leela Meadow O'Connor. Carrie Radigan, Alex Schmitter, and our director as well, Sav Rogers. And the crew on that thing has been amazing. Everybody's just been really helpful and so up for it. And it is a coming-of-age love story with uh, an identity through line, all set against the accidentally controversial backdrop of Kevin Smith's 1997 rom-com, Chasing Amy. Uh, Kevin is involved with us. He uh, has been incredibly forthcoming with his time and his energy and his knowledge and the history of the movie. Um, Most of the cast is in, has been involved with us as well. They all sat down for interviews and dropped a few bombs. I mean, you've seen it. It's a, it's a real love story to people who are moved by movies. Um, And we're often, I think, I guess things get sugarcoated a lot, right? So when you start to hear someone's actual truth behind an artistic experience, As an artist, it seems to have a little extra weight for me. So to know that some people on that project didn't have the world's greatest experience, not just with that movie, because that movie was probably fine for most folks, but 
that time was really controversial, especially if you were a young woman of or a young queer person. Yep. Yeah, I'm really excited because our director uh, revealed so many layers and so much nuance about being a fan, finding one's self, questioning identity, standing and rooting in that identity after you've finished questioning it, right? And then I think overall, compassion for oneself and for others. I was blown away by how a movie can change somebody's life and, and move somebody in such a way that, you know, art has that power over us, right? And, and I didn't know that story. I truly believe it's the best movie I've ever produced. Really? No shade to any of the other filmmakers that I've worked with. They've made incredible works too. But I hope that their next works are better than the previous ones and we all get better at what we do. Yep. Um, it's a real, it's a real eye opening and humbling experience working with this movie and with, um, the LGBTQ community and learning so much about identity and, um, where, where one is in the world at any given moment and, and being attuned to, a greater level of acceptance, right? And that's something we should all strive for. It's not just empathy. It's also acceptance. And I think that my experience on Chasing Chasing Amy and in particular with this filmmaking team gave me what feel like years and years and years, decades of experience in just a few years. You're being you're really kind of humble about it. It's been It's won awards. <laughs> well, we've won. All right. So yeah, let me go. I'll go. Go. Right, let me hit you. Do it. So we're, uh, we're approaching 50 film festivals. Wow. Um, we, uh, premiered at Tribeca. We were closing night at Outfest. We had a panel at Comic Con in San Diego hosted by Kevin Smith, moderated by him. We won the audience feature at Hell's Half Mile at San Diego at, at their Outfest as well. Um, we're having our UK premiere October 14th at BFI London. Wow. So we're really, we're just really like, I can't tell you how grateful we are to play places like Tribeca Outfest and now BFI. Obviously, I'm sure you want it to get picked up and get acquired and distributed and any updates you can talk about on that. You know, we've had a couple of polite passes and we have dozens of considerings right now. Got it. Um, the industry is in still such turmoil. The SAG after strike is still ongoing. We hope it comes to a speedy resolution by the time we air. Who, who knows? Perhaps it perhaps has been solved. Yeah. Um, but I think until that piece of the industry's puzzle is put in place, legacy media, big media is going to have a lot of trouble spending heavy coin on acquisitions. People keep saying that, you know, they think big media is going to run out of content, but they're just flat out wrong. They're not. They have so big media has so much content. And then if they run out of content, they'll just recycle it. You might have noticed in the past couple of months, some of your streamers have like 80s and 90s highlighted carousels and things like that. That's because they are mining that territory and the research and data shows them that they can survive this time. So like there's not going to necessarily be a, a swift or easy resolution to that particular strike with SAG AFTRA. Um I do See, I do think it's coming. I think it's on the horizon. I think the actors are going to win big like the writers did. Um, but it's a difficult time uh, for anybody on either side of that desk. When I texted you um, letting you know that I wanted to do out of sight, you practically jumped through the phone. Why is that? Why are you excited to discuss Steven Soderbergh's out of sight tonight? All right. So first off, I love Steven Soderbergh. His career is mind bogglingly good to me. For me, there's just a certain tone, especially in his earlier films, that strikes a chord with me. And he just kind of, in the late 90s, reinvented 
cool for me in some ways. And I've always loved Out of Sight. It is my favorite Soderbergh movie, hands down, without question. I love Traffic. It's phenomenal. Of course it is. Love it. Sex, Lies, and Videotapes. Mwah. It's so good, right? <laughs> I even I even fuck with Schizopolis. <laughs> now you're going back. You're going. Di- you're digging deep. <laughs> yeah, man. And Schizopolis is acquired taste. It at is the, at, at best. It's it's arduous and difficult, and like it challenges the the viewer to an ex- to a really wide extent. The thing that I loved about Out of Sight was that it was so breezy, and it seemed like. <sighs> It just seemed like an old leather jacket that they all put on and it fit perfectly. And you're like, yeah, I'm back, baby. Would you say that it was effortlessly cool? It is an effortlessly cool film. And I think that effortlessly cool is probably a phrase that like is a pull quote for that movie from somewhere. Probably. You is. know, like I can see Variety saying that. It is just the coolest, man. And when people haven't seen it and I sort of like <laughs> assign it to them. Uh, right, because I'm like a I'm a, I'm a movie evangelist. You have to see this. Um, I, invariably, they come back to me and they're like, "Wow, yep, that that movie fucks." I love that, that you called it a signing. Is that sort of what I've been doing with this podcast? Is sometimes I, I choose movies that I want to make sure that people, if they don't hear about, um, that they need to go see, or if they've seen it and they haven't thought about it in a really long time, I need them to think about it again yeah. because I think a film like this. And, and I can't even say that it's underrated because, as you just said, the critics freaking loved Out of Sight. It was probably one of the highest rated or critically acclaimed films of 98 when it came out. But we're going to get into this in a minute, why it didn't do well, because it didn't do well. And it's not a movie that people really talk about, yet it's like one of probably the best thing George Clooney's ever done. I think Clooney is such a powerful actor. Yep. And he commands such an incredible, suave presence for me, I don't have a favorite Clooney film. I have a favorite Soderbergh film, and it, I wouldn't say it's like lapping the others by any stretch or whatever, but man, I'd be really hard-pressed to find uh, a, a George Clooney movie that I think is like the one. If, if, if it's anything, it's like a tie between Out of Sight and Michael Clayton for yeah. me. He's just so good. It's That's fair. <laughs> um, so, you know, that that's it for me. And like, Yeah, it's almost difficult with this movie to call it the best of anything because it's just the best of so many things for me. I came across Clayton, I want to say, like earlier this summer, and I hadn't seen it in a while. And the end of that movie, when he confronts Tilda Swinton in that ballroom and he and he and he tells her how fucked she is. It was it's it's incredible. Incredible. It's incredible. And shout out to Tilda Swinton. Yeah, her performance that she's incredible in that. Yeah. And everything she does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, dude, Clooney was just picture perfect in that movie. Um, as was like the entire cast. The cast is insane. And also we can probably get into this too, but like you wouldn't have Ocean's Eleven if you didn't have Out of Sight. Perfect storm of Clooney and, and Jennifer Lopez on the upswing of their careers. You got Soderbergh, who's trying to get out of indie jail and the cast that's in Out of Sight. To, you would never even be able to afford a cast like that today. Let alone like I, I don't even know how they afforded it back in the day, but it, it's it's it. Everybody was hitting fastballs in this film. Yeah, and I mean you know the the casting itself is absolutely impeccable, um, and the just the 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 give and take with the actors they're so generous with each other. Does that even make sense? Like it does. they're just 
they they're they're obviously dazzled by each other. I mean, just a sh- like miniature shout out real quick to uh, Luis Guzman as Chino. I mean, are you kidding me? Every scene he does, Poppy is electric, right? Like it's just unreal to me. He's so good. You know the deal. Little Marshall, you're under arrest. Give my bag a deal. Oh, yeah. Mira, please, please. I think there's a misunderstanding here. Can you? Mira, nice bike. Mira, let's say we just forget about it now, okay? We forget about this. I go Shut home. Up. Mira, oh, who the hell told you? Give me the other hand. Back. Okay, okay. The way he says, you know, Mira, and the way he says, Coño, and, and, and out of sight, you, it might go over a lot of people's heads, but like, man, the way he, he owned that character of Chino. Listen, we're already geeking out. We haven't even gotten there yet. So out of sight. Right. Was released on June 26, 1998. Uh, budget of 48 million. It grossed 12 million opening weekend, but a final gross, Matthew, of only 37 million. So it did not do well um, domestically, and only made 77 worldwide. One of the things I've always thought about with this movie is that I was I was surprised when it came out in June of 98 because it didn't feel like a summer tentpole. Right now. I'm sure the studio had their reasons because you got George Clooney off of ER and you got Jennifer Lopez and it's, it's Soderbergh, it's Elmore Leonard and it's the, you know, the author and the book. And like, I get why they try to get it out there in June, but I feels like a fall movie to me. It is or was a fall movie for me. Um, I was living in London at the time oh. and working for um, uh, two companies, the Film Development Corporation, which was a production company. And Downtown Pictures, which was a distributor. Okay. I'll never forget, um, I, read the, I read this script for a movie called Circus that they were about to, they, they, were, also, they were producing. Um, it had just gotten a, a green light uh, via Diana Hawkins at uh, Columbia TriStar, who had gotten me the job. Thank you, Diana. So we're, I read the script. I'm like, oh, man, this is like really cool. It's you know, kind of a noir, kind of a crime thriller thing. Yeah. And they were, it was being greenlit in uh, the UK, this movie Circus, on the heels of the success of Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Sure. Everybody wanted a crime caper. So as they were casting for the lead female role, which eventually went to Famke Janssen, mm-hmm. um, Jennifer Lopez was discussed. Interesting. And um, this was just as, so this is like, this is probably like late September, early October of that year. And um, the movie was released in the UK on November 27th, 1998, um, not long after Thanksgiving. So I'd been living there for a year, almost a year, um, living up in like zone three and just outside of Stoke Newington. And um, I remember leaving work at the production company and going to a small little theater where I was able to always see movies whenever they came out because I worked at a distributor. And I watched out of sight and I lost my mind. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. It was so, so incredible. So I go back on Monday. I'm like, guys, this movie is amazing. Da, da, yeah, you definitely want Jennifer Lopez. So a couple of my bosses go and see it as well. And they're all like, yep, we want JLo. Wow. Holy crap. We want Jennifer Lopez for this movie circus. And like, I think her quote was kind of beyond, yeah. you know, pretty high. And so they started casting around for other people to play this role. 
And coincidentally, they landed on, uh, before Famke Jansen signed on, they landed on Carla Gugino. Oh, really? Who coincidentally went on to play Karen Sisko. In this TV show. The character that Jennifer Lopez plays in Out of Sight later on. It's all like this interconnection. That's amazing. I love that. Carla and I are roughly the same age. They fly her out to London, or maybe she's in London for something, so she comes in for a, an interview or whatever. And I'm sitting in this room, this little conference room with Carla Gugino, and I'm supposed to like keep her occupied and you know just keep her company and be nice until the, her little uh, audition and meeting is going to start or whatever. And she says to me, oh, my God, have you seen this movie out of sight? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I've totally seen it. It's why we're here. Um, I love that. You know, and uh, and so, so yeah, I can I have it on good authority that Carla Gugino loved the Karen Sisko character from the jump. Um, but, uh, yeah, man, I, I just I have these really fond, very clear memories of seeing this movie in a little theater in London in Leicester Square. And just totally loving it and being blown away. Um, and just becoming a like a Soderbergh acolyte kind of at that point, which is like, yeah, whatever that guy does, I'm going to watch. Yeah, I had the same uh, reaction that you did, except I saw it in June of 98 in a theater outside of D.C. And But it, my first reaction was it just didn't feel like a summer, you know, summer blockbuster. And, and it certainly wasn't at the end of the day. But... Um, but this is the time of the Elmore Leonard Renaissance, right? So I want to talk about, about, it's funny that you mentioned Guy Ritchie because Guy Ritchie basically created a whole new, you know, kind of film when he came along with Lockstock and the, the British gangster thug movie, right? Um, the laddie movie that they used to call it. And I think Elmore Leonard, who's obviously an acclaimed author, the late Elmore Leonard, who I was a big fan of, but he had this renaissance that really sort of started in the early mid nineties. And I think you could obviously say, that Tarantino had a lot to do with it when he wrote Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction because he sort of put, you know, funny gangsters back back on the radar, back on pop culture, right? But coming out of those two films, all of a sudden you have Get Shorty, directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, written by Scott Frank. Scott Frank actually wrote Out of Sight as well. You had Tarantino's Jackie Brown, which is based on the novel Rum Punch by Elmer Leonard, which was coming out a year or two later after Get Shorty. So there's this whole Dutch Leonard, Tarantino thing happening where it's 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 gangsters they all like to talk a lot it's funny but it's quirky and like there was this whole stretch of time in the late 90s where you couldn't really escape elmore leonard right yeah they, they, there's a cinematic universe and everybody involved in it decided to keep it intact you know keaton plays the same fbi character yeah right um, I don't even think Keaton got paid for out of sight. I think he showed up for a day or two of filming was just, that was it. Yep. You're absolutely right. Like, dude, watching Dennis Farina and Michael Keaton fucking play like ping pong with their eyes. It's just the greatest. Amazing. They say so much without talking at all. And Keaton gives like this little look to Farina, like, fuck you, man, give me a break. Um, and it's just like Farina is just holding on tight, not ever going to let him go. It's so good. Dennis Farina absolutely had the most fun in my mind on that set, set than anybody else. I think he was also pretty phenomenal in Get Shorty as Ray Bones, Barboni. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, talk about a guy that sort of inhib- inhibited both characters, very different characters, but certainly had, to your yeah. point, a, a blast playing both of them. Why is Elmore Leonard, why was he so revered in the 90s right when when these movies kind of came back and get shorties out there and there's a bunch of other movies that came along to touch and be cool and you know and he had made films they made movies of his books years ago before the 90s boom but like why what is it about these stories that people love so much i, I think it's a, a huge variety of things i think the corporate answer is that um 
Leonard's work was being pushed properly by the right people to the right people at the time. That's fair. So rights becoming available, you know, something in turnaround, this, that, and the other. Um, the other part of it is though that the writing is just incredibly crisp across the board with Leonard. And he has such an incredible, incredibly strong fan base. I mean, if you like fiction and you don't like Elmore Leonard, that means you probably don't like the kind of fiction he writes. Yeah. Um, about people with real problems trying to find maybe convenient solutions. Um, and trying to, we can all relate to like wanting that shortcut in life. Um, and Elmore Leonard shows you over and over again that it is a longer route, but you're going to take it anyway. The human condition. That's right. Writers, you know, and listen, it's also Elmore Leonard is so incredibly male, um, you know, that like it, it sort of hurts. There's a reason why Quentin Tarantino loves him. There's a reason why Dennis Farina pulls into that copy so well, right? Like there's yep. just, there's an inherent dudeness, a maleness about it that is not like frat boy dude at all. It's more wizened. It's more hardened. It is authentic. Yeah. It's a, it's a hard scrabble thing. You know, Leonard is to, for me, Leonard is to like the crime novel, what Bukowski is to poetry in a lot of ways. I don't think they're dissimilar. And I would have loved to sit down, down with those two guys and hear them bullshit with each other for a couple hours. The Leonard legacy continues today. I mean, I mean, you and I haven't had a chance to talk about it. I think it premiered after I saw you in July in LA, but like the uh, Justified series, Justified City Primeval, which came back on FX uh, based on the original series Justified from from 10 years ago. Did you see it? Have you, did you watch that yet or no? Shout out to Dave Andron. I have not yet seen the the reboot. I'm very excited about it. In fact, I'm, I've got it queued up to be watching on my plane trip to BFI to start it uh, six or seven hours in the air. Um, yeah. And I love the justified world and it just, it owes so much to Elmore Leonard. Yeah. When you watch this and I'm not giving anything away, you're going to notice it in the first, probably the first 20 minutes of the first episode, you're going to be, you're going to think this thing reeks of Elmer Leonard in all the right ways. Great. It takes place in Detroit. It's just got, it's got a lot of that flavor that I think you actually see in a lot and, uh, and out of sight as well. So I think you're going to see the parallels. So I hope you do. You mentioned Detroit and I love the like Elmore Leonard origin story of this as well that he saw he saw a picture in the detroit free press of a cop with a shotgun on her leg or on her hip and that's what inspired the karen cisco character which then inspired the rest of the novel they wanted barry sonnenfeld who directed get shorty to direct out of sight unfortunately he passed scott frank as i said earlier he's he came back and wrote the script but uh so he did both films but sonnenfeld passed he was in pre-production on men in black that little movie that's right and and that's why he passed you know uh jersey films danny devito's outfit deserves a lot of credit for this movie and for wrangling those rights and for getting that cast in action you know i, I mean even even back then 1998 19 so this was probably made in like what 95 96 and then it took a while to, to make and then post sure like barry sonnenfeld and danny devito were already huge names Clooney not so much yet although he had come off of batman and was about to be as he was about to be Clooney. of course right but like Batman was not great. And I, th- I think you mentioned this to me at some point. Like, other actors might not have survived that hit. Yeah. Clooney bailed right out of it and into leading man status, like, like just nobody's business. But I often really wonder, wonder as I, because I've watched, I watched Out of Sight probably 50 times. And I, and I sit through the credits and everything. And I really want to know what the conversations were like 
between Danny DeVito and Steven Soderbergh. Right. Because I think DeVito is an absolute genius, um, dating all the way back to his role on Taxi. Sure. Um, and just the the depth and breadth of that man's career is so inspiring. Uh, I mean, he's doing like a he's doing a play on Broadway right now. Like, come on, Danny DeVito, if you hear this, give me a shout. I just want to talk to you. I want to hear what it was like. That's it. I don't want anything else from you. You could you can hire Space Station. Hell, you can buy Space Station if you want, Danny. But I, I really think that there are some like there's some fingerprints on the crime scene of that movie. And some of those prints belong to Danny DeVito, and I'll bet he's very unsung in this regard. You talked about pull quotes earlier, so I want to read a couple. As I said earlier, this film received, I mean, outstanding acclaim. We'll go with Roger Ebert first. He gave the film three and a half stars. I'm not so happy about the three and a half. I think four is probably what I would have given out of sight. But he says, it's the first film to build on the enormously influential Pulp Fiction instead of simply mimicking it. It has the games with time the low-life dialogue, the absurd violent situations, but it also has its own texture. And that texture we're going to talk about in a minute when we talk about what Soderbergh did with this film. Andrew Saris of the New York Observer, for once in a mainstream production, the narrative machinery works on all cylinders without any wasted motion or fatuous rhetoric. They don't make movies like this anymore in this overcalculated and overtested era. And then finally, Kenneth Turn of the LA Times, as always with the best of Leonard, it's the journey, not the destination, that counts. And director Soderbergh has let it unfold with dry wit and great skill. I think they're totally right. It's not a flawless film. No. There's, there's a couple of problems with it here and there. Overall, though, if you're willing to suspend disbelief and just jump into the car, they take you on a hell of a fun ride. Right out of the gate, like early on. Right out of the gate. It's a, it's a really good time. And like from scene to scene, you get these like little moments to kind of catch your breath. But the dialogue is so fast and snappy um, that that it's hard. I, it, it required subsequent viewing for me to catch all of the little things that I like about it. Yep. And there are a lot. I did rewatch this movie about three weeks ago okay. with my teenage children. I have a 15-year-old son, Paxton, and a 13-year-old daughter, Mabel. They both really liked the movie. They did. They did. My son hated White Boy Bob. Really? Interesting. And not because of his horrible nickname yeah. or because he was a murderous thug, but because he was so stupid and clumsy and he kept tripping. <laughs> and my son noticed the two trips before the trip. Sure. Yeah. And when the trip happened, spoiler alert, um, my son was like, oh, come on. No way. He didn't buy that at all. He didn't buy it at all. And I will tell you, easily the first half a dozen times I saw that movie – I only noticed Bob Tripp once. Not the trip, the other trips. Yes, I got you. Correct. Yeah. I only noticed one of them and was like, holy crap. And so like, it, it's funny because it is a telegraphed move. Yeah. Right. It's a telegraph punch. And I don't think Steven Soderbergh traffics, pardon the pun, in telegraphing punches. So it's a, it, it's like almost a, I don't know. I think it was a bad choice in the edit. I would have had one trip. Tops, not two, and then the third. One of the other trips that you're referencing is one of my favorite shots in that movie is when, when Karen is sitting in her car, it's snowing out, it's the night of the robbery at the end, 
and it's a long shot. And I know you know what I'm talking about. She sees the guys walking across the street. They're about to go to the van, and that's where White Boy does his, I think, the first trip, right? And it's a beautiful shot, Matthew. Like, it's just gorgeously lit. It's a long shot, and it's almost like they're going in slow-mo, and she's watching these guys. And there's something just beautiful and, and poetic about the way he frames that, that sequence. But you might not put it together. If you see this movie for the first time, you're not going to put that together, that he's going to trip again You're later. not. And I no. didn't. I Again, I suspended my disbelief. I was so in for the ride. Yeah, it didn't hit when he when when white boy Bob meets his demise. I jumped out of my chair. Yeah, like, I couldn't believe it. You know, and like this beautiful turn of events, like it's just a shit sandwich for everybody. And then these little things start to happen, and you start to get this little glimmer of hope that our boy Clune Dog might be okay. And unrelenting. Uh, as the story is, there are these little windows of hope that open and then quickly shut. And it gives you this like real delightful, frankly, false sense of hope throughout the movie over and over again. But like, you're just rooting for the worst people all the time, all the time. That's the, that's the other thing. There is no hero in this movie, except maybe, maybe, Maybe Dennis Farina. I mean, even Karen Sisko's flawed. She's she's falling in love she's with a bank robber. She's falling in love with a bank robber. And it's not her first one. I know. <laughs> she likes the bad boys. She likes the bad boys, right? which like makes this. her character really interesting. Hey, speaking of white boy with that with the gunshot when he falls, it, it's not unlike Marvin getting shot in the face in Pulp Fiction. It's got that same kind of unsettling reaction, but you as the audience find yourself laughing as brutally violent as it is. It's also kind of hilarious. And you're like, what's happening? It's hilarious. It's hilarious and morbid <laughs> at the same time. And I think the the reaction that you see with people in grief of laughing about something or in like shock or like just the rubberneck mode or whatever that I, I would also love to know how many times they had to film that scene and what the setup was like. I want to talk to the squib guy. Like, I want to know, man. I want to know it all. From a recognition perspective, it was nominated for two Academy Awards. It was up for Best Screenplay by Scott Frank. It was also up for Best Editing by your girl, Ann Coates. And I know we're going to talk about her in a minute. Um, it won the Edgar Award for Best Screenplay. It also won the uh, National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Film, Director, and Screenplay. So this, this mm-hmm. movie is great. This movie was really well-received. Matthew, why did it tank? <sighs> It bothers me. I know. I don't have a satisfying answer for it. I think it was poorly marketed. I agree. I think it came, I think it absolutely came out in the wrong month. This movie comes out in October or November of that year, and it's a different drama for for people. I agree. It wasn't marketed correctly. It didn't know from a marketing perspective if it wanted to be kind of a rom-com or a drama. Is it a heist film or is it a romance? Is it a drama? Like, there's just so many questions for an audience that were never satisfactorily answered by the people promoting the movie. You have this very complex film that doesn't fit into a certain, that does not fit into the summer blockbuster does not. Uh, category at all. Nope. So even like, I, I hesitate to think that anybody thought it was going to be a blockbuster, but to even think it's a summer movie is weird to me. There's a couple of things that play here, and, and I think it's important to talk about before we get into the film. But like, I think partly 
Was there Elmore Leonard fatigue? It's very possible. I mean, you know, everybody was reading Leonard in the 90s, and, and he had Jackie Brown, he had Pulp Fiction, he had Get Shorty, and, and maybe people were sort of tired of the pulp knockoffs. And, and this movie, let's be clear, this movie is not a pulp knockoff. I went back and looked at the trailer the other day because I was curious to see the trailer for Out of Sight because I don't even remember. And Matthew, like later mm. tonight when we wrap, go look at it. The trailer's bad. It's not good. And and, and I'm, and I'm actually surprised as gifted of a filmmaker that Steven Soderbergh is. And you know how filmmakers are. They are very precious about their trailers. This trailer feels like it was done when Soderbergh was on vacation and they didn't show it to him. It just doesn't feel good. Shocking. I've learned my lesson with eighties and nineties movies and their trailers. I do not show them to my kids before we watch a movie. You're just going to watch this movie that I say is good. Yeah. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I apparently am wrong like 9.4 out of 10 times because movies of that era don't really hold up sometimes in the context of a contemporary teen. Yeah. Right. So like there's just problems with all of them out of sight held up phenomenally well. Like I said, the only thing that bothered my kids was white boy Bob being too clumsy, like just too much of a tell. Right. Yeah. And I thought that was a really astute observation um, because I was like, waiting for the white boy Bob scene, you know, like, Oh, my kids are going to lose their mind. They're going to freak out. Oh my God. And, yeah. like, and my son's reaction was completely opposite of what I thought it was going to be. He was just like pissed. He was like, Oh, come on. Stupid. The, the marketing early, the only other thought I wanted to add on that, which is what even more frustrating is the poster for this film. The original posters, they've done different versions of out of sight. They did a new version for it when they released it on video, but I'm talking about the film version I have it in my office. I know you know that I have it. It's it's a gorgeous one sheet. I don't know who designed it. It's got a lot of yellows and oranges and blues. It's beautiful. It's a big side profile of Clooney. And then you've got her in a, in a smaller shot of her holding the shotgun in the middle of the poster. One of the best one sheets I've ever seen. I don't know what happened there. But one thing I did read, and I don't know if this is true, is that Universal was trying to get Meet Joe Black ready. That was the... Um, the Martin Bress film with uh, with Brad Pitt. Mm-hmm. And I guess that movie was originally supposed to be a summer film, but it ended up getting pushed to the fall. So they moved out of sight into June. So I don't know where they moved it from. But the thought is that mm-hmm. they did it so quickly that a lot back in this is pre-internet back in the time, all you really had was newspaper and magazines to do publicity and obviously, you know, TV and morning shows, but they didn't have enough time to get any long lead press they couldn't get Clooney or, or Jennifer Lopez on any covers. So there was a big awareness issue, a big publicity issue that may have contributed to why this film did not open. It just wasn't marketed right in, in many, many ways. The version of the one sheet that I have of Out of Sight has the music credit for Cliff Martinez. Cliff Martinez ended up not doing the music for Out of Sight. It ended up going to David Holmes. David Holmes is a guy that uh, Soderbergh has used. He scored Ocean's Eleven. Cliff Martinez has done a bunch of Soderbergh films. He did The Limey, he did Traffic, he did Solaris, he did Contagion. I think that when um, he was originally going to use Cliff Martinez's score, and then I guess when David Holmes submitted some pieces to Out of Sight that Soderbergh was going to try to use in the movie, he fell in love with his work so much so that he had Holmes do the entire score. Hence, Cliff Martinez does not get the film credit, but I, yet I have it on the poster. It's worth something. I should sell it. That's wild. Isn't yeah, it? That is wild. Poor Cliff Martinez. Oh, good. Not so fast. See, starting out is going to be an across-the-board cost-of-living increase. You know what I mean? What? You know, when I got put in here a year ago on credit card fraud, I didn't really get no props for that, you know? But ever since I shanked that loudmouth pussy in the yard the other day, <laughs> it's like my Dun & Broad Street around this bitch that shot way the fuck up, man. 
Actually, it's uh, Dunham Brand Street. That's the, um, well, I've, I've heard it both ways. Point is that the price is going up around this bitch, too, okay? So get your little black book out. We got some business to talk about. All right, for little fishies, what I said is going to be true. Thousand. Thousand? Yeah, okay, now they're going to be 3,000. Come on. Now they're going to be 3,000. And that uh, saltwater shit that you put in your eyes, what, what do you call that? Bushy lawn. Bushy lawn? Yeah. Yeah, all right, the bushy lawn shit, that's 300. I need it. Yeah, you do. And uh, that extra pillow you want, I'm going to get that for you, but that's going to be like five C's. Five? Hey. Sign says shut the fuck up or can't you fellas read? The fuck you talking to, man? You got a problem over there, Fold? Yeah, the problem is the dumbest fucking shakedown in the history of dumb shakedowns. 500 bucks for a pillow? That's right. It does seem a little high, doesn't it? Shut up, Dick. I think this movie is lightning in a bottle. I think there's so many great elements that all come together at the same time. You've got Soderbergh trying to end his career as an indie filmmaker. Not Maybe not end it, but I think he was known as this indie darling, right? So he's trying to get himself out of indie jail, as he's put it. You've got George Clooney coming off of Batman and Robin, which was a fiasco. You've got Jennifer Lopez, which had, who had just done Anaconda. She was sort of an up-and-comer, right? Nobody's taking the, any lead from Anaconda seriously. As an actor. Not at all, but you've got, this, you've got this great source material, but it's a relatively new book. It's not an old Leonard book. It's, it had just come out a couple years before. So again, you've got Danny DeVito as a, as a production partner. It's all, it all kind of comes together. But would you say that like out of sight sort of widened the aperture and changed the career path for Soderbergh and Clooney? It had to. I mean, first off, it probably solidified their relationship in and of itself, which netted such incredible success down the road. Yeah, they became production partners. Yeah. You know, and, and they wouldn't have necessarily done that without this experience of out of sight. The actors look close. You know, the the script is so tight. Um, I don't know how you can watch this movie as a, as a cast member or as a crew member and feel anything but abject pride. It is such an accomplishment and such an achievement. And I would like, if I made this movie, you couldn't tell me anything for the rest of my life uh, that I was doing wrong. I'd be like, nope, I made out of sight. Fuck you. (laughs) I could play that card for the rest of my life. (laughs) For the rest of my life. And that's how I feel about this movie in particular for Soderbergh. But I also think that like, I think traffic is such an incredible movie. Um, But you know, yeah, there's just something really special about this movie and it's time and place. The cast is impeccable. Right. And just the interplay. So, yeah, I agree with you. I I think that this was the beginning of the real beginning for a lot of folks. Yeah. I mean, look, Clooney and Soderbergh, they they, um, created a production company called Section 8 Productions. They did movies like Insomnia. They did Michael Clayton, which you referenced earlier. They did Syriana, which Mm -hmm. Clooney was nominated for. Obviously, they went off to do Ocean's Eleven and that entire franchise. But this movie was sort of the first big film that Steven Soderbergh did as a mainstream vehicle. And the funny thing is, is that Cameron Crowe was tapped to direct it. He passed. Mike Newell, who directed uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, he passed. And that's when Soderbergh finally got the call from Casey Silver at Universal, and he needed to be convinced. He had said, I'll read the script. They wanted him to read the script. He read it. He said he loved it. He thought it was terrific, but he tried to turn it down. And I guess Casey Silver called him like the next day and said, 
I don't think you realize how often this doesn't happen. You need to seriously <laughs> reconsider your decision on not doing out of sight. And I guess he got his attention and, and that's what led to Soderbergh sort of changing his mind. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it, it's amazing. And I will safely say that if I ran into any person who worked on this movie, it's the only thing I'd want to talk to them about. <laughs> that's why you're doing the show tonight. That's why you're on. I love it. That's right. That's right. Look at what Soderbergh does after Out of Sight. He does in the same year, Matthew, in 2001 or 2000, actually, they, the movies came out in 2000. He was nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards for two different movies in the same year. Aaron Brockovich with Julia Roberts and Traffic, which you referenced earlier with Michael Douglas, which is a phenomenal film. He ended up winning the Oscar for Traffic. All that stuff happens as a result out of the work that he did on Out of Sight. I, I don't think those, those movies even happen for him without Out of Sight. Well, you know, there's just no way around the idea that Out of Sight was a different size arena for him. Yep. That, you know, he's playing with more money and more people and bigger expectations. And somehow or another in that, like, you know, cauldron, they forged this incredible film that I just, I really, do, I, I agree with you. It's not, it's a critical darling, but it, most people just don't even know this movie exists. They don't, they don't. And they're about to. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully you and I have done a good enough job to get people to revisit this thing and look it up and find it on streaming. And, and George Clooney even said it's, it's his favorite film. It's his favorite role. This is what he said about Out of Sight. Out of Sight was the first time where I had a say, and it was the first good screenplay that I'd read where I just went, that's it. And even though it didn't do really well box office wise, we sort of tanked. It was a really good film. This is what Jennifer Lopez says. It kind of became a cult classic. It didn't get as much notice when it first came out at the box office. But now, years later, I still get so many people coming up to me telling me that it's their favorite film. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine meeting J-Lo at like an awards dinner or something <laughs> and being like, oh, my God, I love you in Out of Sight. And she's like, honey, that was a thousand years ago. I mean, it, it is, though. It's, it's, it's so many people's favorite Soderbergh movie or so many people's favorite Clooney movie. And I think that if, if pressed... It's a lot of people's second favorite Jennifer Lopez movie after Selena. That's fair. I'll give you that. So let's talk about the cast. You referenced this cast earlier. This is like a murderer's row of people. L listen to this cast in this film. You have Albert Brooks, who plays Richard Ripley. You have Dennis Farina, who plays Karen Sisko's father, Marshall. Ving Rhames, who's coming off of, I mean, this guy was running hot already with Pulp Fiction and Mission Impossible. You've got Don Cheadle. And I, I remember this specifically. When this movie came out in 98, I remember Don Cheadle was like the guy that everybody was talking about. He was like this up-and-coming actor. The critics loved him. You have Don Cheadle. You have Catherine Keener, who's hardly in this movie. He ends up having a great career in and of itself. And this is like one of the very first things I remember Catherine Keener in. You have Steve Zahn. You have Louis Guzman. Viola Davis. Matthew. Viola Davis, who is one of our best-known and most acclaimed actresses today working She's got a very small role in Out of Sight, a great role. Samuel L. Jackson does a cameo. And as you said earlier, Michael Keaton dropped by for a few days and, and, and played the same character that he played in Jackie Brown, Ray Nicolette. That cast, you'll never see that again. It's, it just doesn't happen. Never. Never. And that cast has so many memorable lines and so many memorable exchanges. I can't even look at somebody wearing sunglasses at night without thinking of Steve Zahn. <laughs> 
fucking Glenn Michaels and his stupid sunglasses. Tell Glenn if he comes anywhere near me with those glasses on his face at night, I'm going to take them off his head. Like, it, it, it's so good. I'm paraphrasing, but like, yeah, there's just these moments. Just I, everywhere I, it, it, it has such an indelible, um, touch on, on my life, um, artistically speaking. Um, but I think, you know, that, that, that's just kind of who I am in a lot of ways. I still sign into buildings as Jack Bauer, you know? You just said the word touch, and I want to talk about that. I actually have this in my notes. It's the Soderbergh touch, right? And I think that, that mm. there, there are these flourishes that he brings to this movie um, that you don't normally see in a big studio film like this. And I think he probably honed his craft a little bit on this film doing this because you see this work that he does later on when he does Ocean's Eleven. I think the ensemble that he managed on Out of Sight allowed him to maybe even replicate it or even take it to the next level on Ocean's Eleven, given all the big names that are in, in Ocean's Eleven. But let me read you this quote, and then we'll talk about some of these little flourishes that he brings to this movie. This is what he said about Out of Sight. You can have a film like Out of Sight that operates well on a mass entertainment level, yet also has quirky, interesting cinematic elements. Let's talk about some of those elements. There are the time jumps, right? There are these, these, mm-hmm. these pauses, these freezes that he does with the camera, the use of color. I can't imagine that most of that stuff is written in the script. No. That has to be a lot of it as a, a style choice. Yep. And so there's probably this weird menage a trois that happens between the director, the director of photography, and the editor. Um, and that brings me to the editor of Out of Sight and V. Coates, who passed away in 2018, uh, rest in power. This woman was a marvel. Yes. Huge. You know, the only peer that comes to mind for her to me is really Thelma Schoonmaker, mm-hmm. um, you know, who is still with us and just delivered Killers of the Flower Moon, which is incredible. I just saw it on Saturday. You had to just say that to me and make me feel lame now that I haven't seen it yet. You suck. I did. It's fine. Is it good? You're going to love it. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Lily Gladstone is a gift. But if you go back and you look at um, Ann Coates's career, it's like, what? This woman edited Lawrence of Arabia, bro. She sure did. And the Elephant Man. And the Elephant Man. And Murder on the Orient Express, the original one. Dude, she edited What About Bob? I didn't know that. <laughs> it has such incredible timing. And I think that the push-pull that, that was given was that on set, Soderbergh took these shots and had his DP collaborate with him and make sure that they were going to get the, you know, the right feel, the right look, the right color temp, all that stuff. And mind you, back then, it's shot on film, so they're doing color temp, color timing, and all that shit back then too, right? Yep. It was not a technically easy film to make. I'm positive of that. Um, and so the the pieces were all there, but then in the edit room. And Coates introduces this kinetic style that feels it feels like a Saul Bass graphic. It feels like a high energy pulp fiction kind of crime type, you know, book. Um, and then it feels hard boiled all at once, but it has this weird classy gloss to it. it it's just it's it, there's not a wasted frame in this movie. Nope. And the transitions between scenes and the punctuations that are given, the freezes, the long takes. I mean, this movie was one in the edit room. 
I remember when I first saw it, the opening scene of this movie, George Clooney comes out as, as Jack Foley's. He gets kicked out of Richard Ripley's office building because he had a job for him that he didn't, he didn't like. So he was pissed off. He gets thrown out and he, he comes out. He's in the, he's in the front of this building. He's in Miami and he takes his tie off. He's wearing a suit. He takes his tie off and he throws it and the camera freezes on him when, the, when he's throwing, throwing it midair and it says out of sight on the titles come on screen out of sight over this freeze. And you're like, What's happening here? Why is this movie frozen for a second? And you see Clooney and it's got the title and then it continues and then they do it again a couple of different times throughout that film, not overdo it, but they have these, these moments of pauses. Phenomenal. Yeah. Like, those are phenomenal decisions. Elliot Davis, the cinematographer, they did the, uh, Grey's, they did Grey's Anatomy together. And so there was definitely at least a little bit of a shorthand between them. They also did King of the Hill together. Um, like they've done, you know, other things so there's definitely a shorthand that he had with his dp and then i i would again i would give anything to have been in that edit room and seen ann Coates just go to town on this oh. thing she had to be like she had to just be so excited like oh look at all of these incredible things you've left me to play with like there just had to be they they, they made all the right choices at every juncture. There's a reason why this movie was nominated for Best Editor, because the way the way the movie jumps back and forth in timeline, which obviously is done previously, they did that in Reservoir Dogs, they did it in Pulp Fiction, they do it in Out of mm-hmm. Sight, so it's not an original technique, but um, it's done, to, I, I don't think I've ever seen it done in, to better effect than they do it in this film. You talked about Elliot Davis as the DP. The use of color in this film, you got like the first you know, 35 minutes of this movie, first half of this movie where they are in, um, in South Florida, a lot of warm oranges and yellows and that, and it, there's a, there's a warmth to the texture. But then when they go up to Detroit, when the movie pivots and it goes up to Detroit to, to get closer to the Richard Ripley robbery, all of a sudden it's in downtown Detroit. You see these great shots. It's blue. It's gray. It's dark. It's cold. And like he does this again in traffic. And I know you know what I'm talking about in traffic where he used a different color palette for the three different storylines that were sort of happening, um, in parallel in that film not many directors go to that length matthew to like have different color palettes for different parts of the story i think there's like um a a little bit of um christoph kraskowski i'm gonna gonna mispronounce that name i think there's a little bit of that in there yep um you know the red and blue blue. um he is soderbergh is a cinephile right he knows movies inside and out so it's no surprise that he's able to take what you've maybe kind of sort of seen in other places and give it, you know, the Soderbergh spin, the Soderbergh touch, right? Um, and I think that movies these days don't seem to get as much um, as much focus on color until post. Color used to be a different thing than it is now. So we color grade, we've always color graded, right? But back in the day, you would do color timing and there's like a mathematical equation and the exposure and which kinds of lights you're using and time of day and like all of this shit that is so complicated and so complex. I could have never been a DP before the advent of digital. Uh, I could, I could barely shoot now. <laughs> um, but now you get into post production and you're in your DaVinci Resolve suite. And you're starting to dial these colors back or whatever, and you have a LUT and you have all this color information. And sometimes it's just boring. Chasing a specific look was such a signature of filmmakers in Soderbergh's heyday. 
Uh, and it certainly still is. Everybody has like a thing. I mean, you, the Wes Anderson aesthetic, for sure. instance. Of course. Right? Yep. But there definitely is uh, something to be said for the way Soderbergh approaches the production design uh, in that way, both from lighting, from uh, location, um, to the way it's to, to the way it's filmed. You mentioned that shot of Clooney at the beginning where he throws his tie and it freezes. When we come back to that shot and we revisit that angry temperature at the end from a different angle. Yep. It's behind him. Yeah, it's it's like this. It's just the way that movie wraps up for you and like, aha, 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 is really phenomenal. He turns the camera behind Jack Foley and that's when he sees the SunTrust Bank across the street. And that's what leads to the bank robbery, which opens this film. Like it, it's just, And then he yeah. gets and he gets caught because his car didn't start. You're talking about a, a director in Soderbergh that, I mean, I remember, I think you probably saw this a few years ago during COVID when he was, I guess he was bored. And he thinks so highly of the way Steven Spielberg shot Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is one of my favorite films, that he did. Do you see the version where he did Raiders in black and white and he scored it to nothing but the Trent Reznor score from The Social Network? No, you're blowing my mind, though. No, I've never seen this. I have to. Oh, you got to look this up. Google Soderbergh Raiders black and white. That's all you got to type in. He literally turned Raiders of the Lost Ark into a black and white film. And he took out all the music and all the sound, all the speaking. There's nothing in it. It's a silent movie except for the score from The Social Network. Oh, I'm in. I'll watch this tonight. Pour yourself another bourbon and watch that later and text me. It's incredible. All right. There's two sequences in this movie that really stand out that are probably worth talking about for a minute or two. One is the trunk scene, which opens the film. Mm-hmm. And the other is um, the scene at the end in the hotel in Detroit when Karen's having a drink at the rooftop bar and Jack comes up and... You know these two scenes. Is it fair to say these are the two like signature moments of this film? The trunk scene is the signature film. Every other scene in Out of Sight is in second place. Okay. That trunk scene is one of the sexiest, most engaging bits of dialogue between two people in the history of film. Boy, it's stunk in there. I believe it. You're ruining a $900 suit my dad gave me. Yeah, I'm going to with that 12-gauge, too. I'm going with someone like you from federal marshal. The idea of going after guys like you appealed to me. So what is that? Guys like me? Let me tell you something. Even though I've been celibate lately, I'm going to force myself on you. I've never done that in my life. You wouldn't have time anyway. We come to a roadblock. They run the car and find out in about five seconds what belongs yeah, to you. if they get set up in time, which I doubt. If they do, we'll be looking for a bunch of little Latin fellas. Big black guy driving a Ford. Must be quite a pal. Risk his own ass like this. Buddy, yeah, he's a good guy. Back when we jailed together, we used to call his sister every week without fail. She's a uh, born-again Christian. You know, she does bookkeeping for a televangelist. You call her up, you confess his sins, you tell her whatever bank he happened to rob at the time. <laughs> Buddy, that is given name? One I gave him, yeah. So what's your name? Be in the paper tomorrow anyway. Jack Foley. Probably heard of me. Why are you famous? Time I was convicted in California, the FBI told me that I robbed more banks than anybody in the computer. How many was that? To tell you the truth, I don't really know. Started when I was 18 years old, driving for my uncle Cully and his partner Gus. So basically, you're saying you spent half your life in prison? Basically, yeah. I go back, I do 30 years, no time off. Can you imagine looking at that? I don't have to. I don't rob banks. Yeah, you don't seem all that scared. 
Of course I am. You don't act like it. What do you want me to do, scream? That didn't help much anyway. No, I'm just gonna sit here, take it easy, and wait for you to screw up. Not like my ex-wife. You were married? Just for about a year. It could take a few days. It's not like we didn't get along, we had fun. We just didn't have that thing, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, spark. You know, gotta have that. As written, it could have been so creepy. And Lopez does like this amazing job of being really low key. And Clooney does this amazing job of showing his character's humanity in that like, oh, this guy is an actual buffoon. (laughs) He is street smart. He is. And he's savvy in the yard. Yep. Right. And he's quick on his feet. And he's good looking as hell, but he's a fucking dummy. And if he wasn't a fucking dummy, he wouldn't be trapped in the back of a trunk of a car after escaping from prison with a marshal. (laughs) And so you learn so much. You learn so much about Clooney in that scene. And yet not only does the viewer like him, Karen Sisko likes him. she, She falls for him right in that moment, right in that moment. And there's like, there's this bit where he like he's kind of he's lightly touching her the the fabric of her skirt. Her skirt, yeah, yeah. And and like very subtle. It's this, yeah. It's this funny moment because he's he's he, like the character is acting impulsively yet also realizing oh wait this kind of this lady's kind of classy oh what's going on here and you see Soderbergh start to really like respect the fact. That this woman who smells so good. Remember, he's been in prison for a little while already. Sure. So she smells so good. She's obviously pretty. You had to pick that up in the first millisecond of running into her. And now you're you're nestled against her in the back of this car. It is ripe for the picking of improper, right? It could be so wrong in so many ways. And yet it does hold up. It does feel human both of them not really like oh i'm just falling for you but both both of them being like there's a door open here and they're talking about things that you talk about on a first date right they're talking about movies he tries to reference network and she sort of tells him what the quote was and then and then she makes a bonnie nice. and, she, she makes a bonnie and clyde reference which he doesn't get at first and then he's like oh you're talking about bonnie and clyde and like i guess the thing that catches me the most when you watch this sequence is it's early in the film right and, you know, and it's a patient scene. It goes on for a little while. I mean, a long, long being relative, but like a good couple of minutes where people are impatient today. I wouldn't have been surprised back in 98 if people were like, what is this movie? Like, why, why is the scene in this trunk taking as long as it's taking as great as it is, as you just said, other people might be like, what is this? I don't like this. They did 45, 45 takes, takes of that scene. Unbelievable. And, um, Originally filmed as a master shot. I did not know that. And with when tested with audiences, they had to reshoot it. Because they were bored? Is that is that why? Or they- I think ostensibly so. Oh, wow. So that my instinct on that is actually what ended up happening. People were like, this, this needs to move along. Yeah, it's too slow. What's slow about it is what's great about it, which is one of the best parts of the movie is why I love it. If Out of Sight was a play, <laughs> that would be still everyone's favorite scene in the theater. Right? You know? I'm Gary. I'm Celeste. 
it takes forever to get a drink around here. There's only one bar. mattress. No. Don't go. Those guys body. Oh, they're fine. I mean, you just got here. You help yourself. You like bourbon? I love it. We got that out of the way. Tell me, Celeste, what do you do for a living? Yeah, I'm a sales rep. And I came here to call on a customer, but uh, they give me a hard time because I'm a girl. Is that how you think of yourself? As a sales rep? As a girl. Yeah, I don't have a problem with it. I like your hair. I like your outfit. But actually, this is my second favorite outfit. I had a first favorite, but it got ruined and I had to get rid of it. You did? It smelled. Really? Having it clean didn't help? No. <laughs> so tell me, Gary, what do you do for a living? How far do you want to go with this? <sighs> Not yet. Don't say anything yet. I don't think it works for somebody else. I mean, Gary and Celeste, what do they know about anything? Well, this is your game I've never played before. It's not a game. It's not something you play. Well, does this make any sense to you? It doesn't have to. It's something that happens. It's like seeing someone for the first time. Like you could be passing on the street and, and you look at each other and for a few seconds there's this kind of a, a recognition. Like you both know something. The next moment the person's gone. And, and it's too late to do anything about it. And you always remember it because it was there and you let it go. And you think to yourself, what if I had stopped? What if I had said something? What if? What if? It may only happen a few times in your life. I really love that bar scene when she, you know, he obviously is in Detroit. She goes to Detroit looking for him. She's at this hotel. She's getting hit on by these idiot ad guys from the agencies, right? And those scenes are great. Even before Clooney shows up, all that is amazing. And then he finally shows up and they have this little wordplay. They pretend to be um, two different people. They change their names at first. And then going back to Ann Coates and the editing, that scene goes from the bar to the bedroom. Where, they, where she's staying in that hotel. The interplay with time is so well constructed and out of sight that when you're in the present day and you flash back long ago to a scene, you understand it fully. And when you're in a current scene and you flash into something that is almost concurrent, it's still the same vibe. And so you're able to like kind of in the same way that Mike Figgis pulled it off with time code and you've got the four different panels. Yeah. This does that by just flipping back and forth and showing you conflict, resolution, conflict, resolution, 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 resolution. And so you get like you get this interplay between characters that ultimately becomes very satisfying because you're not waiting for a payoff. They give it to you in these very sweet little packages in these flashback moments. And they're very illuminating. There's a lot of aha about them. The scene where they meet up in the hotel is exquisite. It's beautifully shot. Beautifully shot. The, you know, and this is another reason why it shouldn't have come out in the summer. I mean, that winter time in Detroit, it just begs for you to be able to walk out of the theater into the snow. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the, you know, the, the ad men are hilarious. Like, you know, the, I, those guys, and you've seen a couple of those guys are like the guy from that thing. You've seen them in, in other things. There are those guys. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, let me guess, new account, but first big new account and client doesn't like that it's a girl. Like, it's just the dumbest, Terrible. most accurate thing. And, you know, like, I'm 
I promise you that women in bars still feel that way. And, he, and she gives him one of the best lines I've ever heard in a movie when she's like, after the guy does the whole thing about the commercial, she's like, seriously, Andy, who gives a shit? <laughs> who gives a shit? It's the best. My daughter, like, ha! She scoffed. She loved it. Hilarious. Yeah. But did you know that that sequence, um, and I never saw this movie called Don't Look Now from Nicholas Rogue, but it's a movie with Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie um, where they're in bed and they're they're also getting dressed to go out. And there's this back and forth cutting um, in terms of editing. And I didn't realize that that's what Soderbergh and Ann Coates were. I guess they were paying homage to that film in the way they the way they um, directed and edited the sequence at the hotel. It doesn't surprise me in any way um, that Soderbergh and Coates would like pay homage to great scenes or great films or great actors across the board. I'd like to give two little shout outs in this movie and, and little tangents to talk about them. One is Catherine Keener. Oh, so good. So good as Adele, the magician's assistant. So good. She's so good. And like that role, it could have been such a dumb, fluffy little like fly by night kind of thing for anybody. And Keener brings just this gravity to it, this realness. I I firmly believed that was Adele. Right. And Catherine Keener at that point had not become Catherine Keener. You know, nobody knew how, well, Soderbergh knew, but not many people knew just how incredibly good she was going to be. Oh, right? she ends up being the lead in 40-year-old virgin, you know, years later with Steve Carell. She's the female she's so yeah. She's so wonderful in it. Um, and she's had such a storied career. But like at this point, she hadn't done that much. Like she'd done some TV, like LA Law. Um, I think she'd done a Seinfeld episode or two. Um TV movie, these if uh, if these walls could talk. She hadn't done um, Your Friends and Neighbors yet with Neil Labute. Out of Sight was the movie before Your Friends and Neighbors, yep. which absolutely broke Catherine Keener into the mainstream. I agree. Um, I I could do one of these on Your Friends and Neighbors too, but Neil Labute's got so many problems that I want to. <laughs> um, uh, how to screw up your career, right? Seriously, Neil Labute. Um, what a jerk. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, Catherine Keener is incredible in this movie and she deserves a lot of credit for just that, that little role. I mean, what did she probably do? Three, four days on this movie at most, for filming? At most. Right? Yeah, a couple scenes. Yeah. And then we have not really, we, we mentioned him, but we have not talked about the king of pathos, Albert Brooks. Albert Brooks, our boy. Hey, hey, take it easy. It's all right, Peggy. It's under control. You know something? I wasn't sure that you'd show up here, but I was very sure if you did, you'd throw this job in my face. Let me tell you something. Every single thing you've done with your life up until this point in the real world means nothing. Less than nothing. You're a bank robber. It's not a very marketable skill. We don't see a lot of old bank robbers walking around with a pension plan, now do we? I think you know this. That's why you're here. (sighs) Today, I've offered you a lousy job with a lousy wage. You want something better? Why don't you show me you can change? Then I'll offer you something better, a lot better. But until then, my friend, you'll have to earn it. How, Dick, the way you earn it? Man, some rich broad owns a company selling off a piece of time and divorcing her. Is this... It's a new rock and you pull yourself up by the bootstraps of bullshit. Back in prison, a guy like you in a place like that, you were ice cream for freaks. A goddamn dumpling. Maurice, 
and a dozen other guys would have bled you till you had nothing, until you were nothing. I saved your ass. So you'll pardon me if I don't want to sit on a fucking stool all day and say, sign in here, please. Or, hey, pal, you can't park here. All right, dick? I can't fucking do it, dick. He's so good at this role of being like this entitled, fearful bitch uh, who just is obviously so rooted in privilege yep. that it, it, it just hurts. And so Clooney's struggle against the world you know, is his struggle against Brooks's character, yeah. right, writ large. Jealous of him, he's envious of him, all, all of it. He res- also respects him a little bit as well, all of it. All of these things. And Brooks was, you know, Brooks had done broadcast news a decade earlier. He did Defending Your Life right after that. Meryl Streep, come on. I mean, Love it. I, like, you're not going to really top the one-two punch of broadcast news and Defending Your Life for me, right? That's a real difficult one. Oh, by the way, Lost in America was before broadcast news. So, like, yeah, that's a that's just just three incredible films from Albert Brooks right off the right out of the gate, and then you know like I don't think he had done anything that was like of substance for a, a couple of years, and then it gets out of sight, and he's sort of seen again as this incredible character actor. Yep. Um, you know, Hollywood careers are so up and down. And when you look at somebody's body of work and you think, oh my God, they've done 48 movies or whatever, you're totally blown away. But then you start to look at them and it's a, it's a roller coaster of success. Of course. Right? Some of them are just, they just tank. And then you end up like three or four movies that tank in a row. And then you get a movie like Out of Sight. Out of Sight. Yep. And you're back, baby. You're back getting and the phone calls again, at least for a little while. Albert Brooks never went anywhere. The guy is so talented. Is uh, you know just so incredibly talented as a writer, as a director, as a producer, as an actor, just so good. And he, in a lot of ways, makes Out of Sight so enjoyable for me because his character is so determined to just be selfish. He's hiding, you know, during the home invasion and putting Midge in, you know, makes her answer in, the door. In, <laughs> it's unreal. The toupee. It's incredible. Just the wardrobe choices for his character are phenomenal. Um, yeah, Albert Brooks just brings something extra, extra special for this movie for me. Um, proving once again that he's just one of my favorite all-time actors. And there's longevity in his career. I watched um, one of my favorite movies over the last decade, and you and I have never talked about this film, but I suspect you love it, um, is Drive with uh, Ryan Gosling. Mm-hmm. Albert Brooks plays the, the main heavy. He plays the bad guy, and he plays him. Yeah. He plays him great. plays him great. Right? Um, Albert Brooks, I have the feeling, is actually a really nice human, but incredibly observant and knows exactly when people are not nice humans. Yeah, and he plays that well. He knows how to do it quite well. Yeah. yeah. I, I meant... Universe, please let Albert Brooks be really cool. When you get a small role like that in a movie like this, and he's not in it much, but when he's in it, he he owns every scene in the film. And I would say the same thing for Don Cheadle. I think Don Cheadle as, as Snoopy Miller, he owns every scene in this movie. And he's not in a lot of it, but when he's in it, he just dominates, dominates. And he's so good. Um, and another incredible performance is Isaiah Washington, who has this really small but incredibly menacing role. And, you know, I, I once thought I was going to name a dog Tuffy. Tuffy. <laughs> I want to tussle. <laughs> me, me and Tuffy, we usually like to tussle. Um, and then I was like, no, 
No, that dude's just bad juju all the way around. You can't, it's a bad you dude. can't embrace it at all. He's got that fireman's coat on. What's, what's going on with that? Dude, he's so, like, just down and out. That, that character is the scariest character. Snoopy's not that scary to me. Isaiah Washington's character is far. That dude's unhinged. He's, he's unhinged. Yeah. Yeah. He's unhinged. At least Snoop has like, wants to like make people think he's doing well. Other dudes just do not care. Just love the fact that out of sight and Jackie Brown and get shorty, which all came, came out within like three years of each other. They all sort of live in the same cinematic universe. Mm -hmm. You've got, Dennis Farina, as you mentioned earlier, who I'm a huge fan of, especially as um, his work in, in uh, Midnight Run. But, you know, he plays uh, Karen's dad, Marshall, he, but he's also Ray Bones and Get Shorty, as we mentioned earlier. Fuck you, fuckball. <laughs> I mean, one of my favorite lines of Get Shorty. You've got Samuel L. Jackson, who plays Hajira Henry, which is a cameo at the end of Out of Sight, but he also plays Ordell Roby and Jackie Brown. As you mentioned, you've got... Um, Michael Keaton shows up as Ray Nicolette in both movies, which never happens where a studio that owns the rights of a character lends that character out to another studio to play the same guy in another movie. That just doesn't happen ever. No, and and no. the fact that that happened in this movie, I mean, again, just the way they, the, these actors sort of just pop in and out of these these three films, as I love all three of these films for different reasons, um, just a, a great moment in time in the late 90s, which you don't really, you don't really see ever happen. It, it really is. Uh, a perfect button on the 90s as a decade of cinema. There's so much richness in the dialogue. If you're a J-Lo fan, if you're a Clooney fan, you have to go back and watch this film. Yep, You're doing yourself a disservice otherwise. If you're a Soderbergh fan, same rule applies here. You, this is a movie you need to go see. Um, there's not a single person involved with this movie that would not get my praise and thanks for making this film. If I met them in real life, <laughs> I would just be that annoying guy who loved out of sight and they'd be like, Oh, Oh yeah. When was that? Oh yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot about that. I ran into Matthew Modine once at Paragon sports in um, union square, union square. <laughs> uh, we're both like clamoring for like sale sneakers or some shit. And I look over and I'm like, I was like, Oh, you're Matthew Modine. He says, Oh, Hey, I don't know you. <laughs> awesome. And I said, I said, I really love some kind of wonderful. <laughs> not the mask. Of course. No. Of course. Not full metal jacket. Not mask. Not mask. <laughs> nothing, nothing, nothing of substance. I liked some kind of wonderful. Arguably one of the worst John Hughes movies ever. Um, but he's so good at it. Um, you know, there's obscure roles and um, obscure movies or not so obscure that stick with you as a fan. And that's just, you know, that's just what it is. This movie came along. It didn't do well. So it's not, you know, it's understandable where it might not be on a lot of people's radars, but as you just said, you're doing yourself a disservice if you do not watch this film. And I would also add that you're doing Matthew Mills a disservice and you're doing Dennis Kamlick a disservice by not watching out of sight. So please yeah, don't do that to us. Don't do us dirty. Watch out of sight guys. Just go watch it. I implore you to please watch it and you will be richly rewarded. Matthew, what are we doing next? This was a blast. I love this. This was a great conversation. I appreciate you. Yeah, man. Uh, let's let's find another movie to talk about. Anytime you're ready, I'm ready. When is uh, Chasing Chasing Amy going to be available for people to watch? Like, what, what are we looking at? Is it going to be like a year from now? I think it's going to be less than a year from now. Okay. We're on our festival run right now. So you can see us um, this month at the Heartland Film Festival. You can see us at the Tallgrass Film Festival. Um, you can see us um, next month uh, in London this month as well. And then a few other places. Um, 
you can follow at Chasing Amy Doc on all the socials and go to ChasingAmyDoc.com. Um, you can also follow me, Spaceman Mills, on Instagram, and you'll find some uh, some posts there, um, along with adorable pictures of my kids, concerts, and my horrible pottery. Um, and um, yeah, man, like we're really excited about Chasing Chasing Amy. Uh, we think it's going to do well. We're looking at a theatrical run. Um, April, May, or June of 2024. Nice. Um, which will be a, roughly a year after our premiere date, which was at Tribeca, of course. Yep. So that's a pretty normal run for most films these days. So we're, we're having a blast and looking forward to getting it out in front of people. Really heartfelt documentary. It was really touching, really smartly done. As you said, um, Kevin Smith's in it. A lot of the cast is in it. If you love Chasing Amy back in the 90s, you will love this documentary. Matthew, I'm glad you're in my life. You haven't been in my life very long. I wish you had been in my life longer because I think you and I, um, I, I you, would, you would have been a great wingman going to see a movie like Out of Sight and, and grabbing a bourbon afterwards and talking about the brilliance that we just saw in it. But hey, listen, you're in my life now and that's better than nothing. So I'm glad that you are. I'm happy to be here. Um, and, you know, it is, we, we are kindred spirits. I, I knew almost immediately upon reading, uh, you know, your um, your pilot that we spoke a very similar language, um, not just English, um, <laughs> that we that we spoke a very common, you know, language of, of, of feeling and emotion as it relates to what's on a screen. Um, and you're a true cinephile. I love hearing your conversations about movies. Um, I love talking about movies and I think hopefully people who also appreciate it are going to enjoy this. Well, listen, it was a blast having you on tonight. I really appreciate your time. Thank you as always. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll, we'll be back again soon enough. And uh, Matthew, it's a pleasure. Be well. Appreciate you, brother. Right, Thank you so much. Love you. Back at you.